Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Revelation 8 through 10. So we're going to actually do more than one chapter this time, Bryce. Good stuff. <laughs> but it flows pretty good. And, and we've got to get to 10 because 8 and 9 is a little scary. And 10, I think, is the overall message. So we've got to make sure we get to 10. But 8 and 9 are very similar. It's kind of the same time period broken into two chapters. Yeah. So can I start off a little bit, Bryce, Jump with, in. with uh, the trumpets? So... Seven seal opens in verse one, and then it says there's silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I can't even tell you guys how many commentaries I've read about that. And my answer to anybody questioning is I have no idea. So here's one way to look at it. When the king walks in, everybody stands and it's quiet. And this could be a way to say we're announcing the king is going to come. Now, the problem is, of course, well, stuff's got to get wrecked. So chapter eight talks a lot about trumpets and seals. And there are seven trumpets that are going to take place during this time period. Now, some of the trumpets happen in this chapter and some in nine, and there's the seventh and 11. The trumpets represent, in a lot of ways, the intervention of God in history. So here we are, we're people, we're living in the world, and the trumpet is a way for God to say, let me get your attention. I'm going to intervene in history. And I find it significant that on not on all of them, but on the tops of a lot of the temples, we have an angel, uh, a representative of God with a trumpet in his hand. It's like he's trying to say, wake up. So just really quick, this is quick history. When they went to battle, the Israelites would have trumpets, and you can read this throughout Judges chapter 3 and chapter 6. When the king was coronated in 2 Samuel 15.10 or in 1 Kings one thirty four or 2 Kings, uh, 9, 13, you can read about the coronation of the king. So the king was to be coronated and we'd sound the trumpets. And, you know, you even see this in some of the Disney movies. So Disney got that right. Uh, the gathering, when we're going to gather a solemn assembly, Numbers 10, we're going to blow a trumpet in verses 2 through 7. Also, if you've ever been in scouts and you're tired and the trumpet says, get up, it's time for breakfast. A warning for danger, Jeremiah 4, Ezekiel 33, Amos 3, verse 6. All of these are dangers. Hey, there's something's going to happen. And then in a temple context or a liturgical context or ritual context, the trumpet is a reminder. And so you read this in Numbers 8 through 10, but you also read it in the passage of Exodus 19, where God says, I want to make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And I like to read that as God saying, I want to make you a kingdom of priests and priestesses, kings and queens, a holy nation. And the trumpet is part of that ceremony. And so it has high theological significance. And so if you don't remember anything, just look at it as the king's coming and we're going to blow some trumpets. We're going to get people awake. And so in this seven seal are seven trumpets that are going to blast. So the angels are going to sound and they're going to do stuff. And so that's kind of a short intro to chapter eight. And let me take you back to chapter seven that began with four angels that have the charge over the cleansing of the earth. And they were told to hold back until we had time to identify the righteous. Well, we've had time. Another one of the silences that you could interpret the silence is a pattern of third Nephi, that 
the great sign was given at his birth, a day and night and a day with no darkness. And then there was relative silence. There were no trumpets throughout his whole life, and then the destruction was associated with his death. So there was a period between the great sign being given and the destruction being culminated. And that silence gave them a chance to listen and repent and to hold on to their repentance. And so we've now warned. We've warned, warned, warned. And now the day is, now we're going to cleanse. But we're gonna, there's going to be silence to make sure we've yeah. had our time to warn. But even with these warnings, I like, and if you didn't listen to the last podcast, go back and listen to it. On the one in Revelation 7, Bryce lays out the whole purpose is to warn. And you liken it to the Exodus plagues and how they started annoying and they got warmer and warmer and warmer. Pretty soon the stove was white hot. If you look at these plagues carefully in these chapters, the Lord makes this distinction where he says, it's not everything. A lot of times it's a third part, like a third part of the trees or a third part of the grass. I'm trying to get your attention, but it's not total. Right. Let's do that. So verse seven, the first angel sounds, and not all of the trees were burnt up, but the third part. So let's just notice them in the scriptures, and then we'll talk about what the third part might mean. So angel sounds, and it's just the trees, not people, trees. And then in verse eight, the second angel sounds... And it's the third part of the sea became blood. And the third part of the creatures which were in the sea that had life died. And the third part of the ships were destroyed. Now, verse 10, the third angel sounds and a star falls from heaven as if it were a lamp and it fell upon the third part of the rivers. So all of creation is trying to warn us that destruction is here. It falls upon the third part of the trees, the third part of the sea, the third part of the rivers. In verse 11, the third part of the waters became wormwood and were very bitter. In verse 12, the fourth angel sounded, and it was the third part of the sun was smitten, the third part of the moon, the third part of the stars, the third part of them that were darkened, and shone not for a third part of it. I mean, you can't miss that he's trying to get our attention. And then in chapter 9, we're going to continue. Verse 5 the angel sounds, and now we're turning to people, to humans. But again, let me remind you, verse 4, what's not being destroyed? Who are not the third part? In verse 4, it's those who have the seal of God in their foreheads. So maybe we ought to pause. I think it's worth pausing in the middle of all this destruction to say, well, what's going on with the others. Let me take you back to the end of chapter 7. If you gather to Zion, if you put the mark on your forehead, if you will be with the saints, both spiritually and temporally, if you will gather to Zion, verse 14, these are they which come out of great tribulation. They've washed their robes. They've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which was in the midst of the throne shall feed them. If I could shout out anything in the midst of destruction, Jesus will feed his servants. He will be with those that love him and have put his name on their forehead. They are not being destroyed. They are not screaming out in agony and pain. They are with him. He will feed them. 
and shall lead them unto living fountains of water, and shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Please don't think that the whole earth is being destroyed, that everything is in absolute chaos. God is with his people. It's kind of like when, and this is hard to say, but sometimes people have to go down a road of total, they have to just burn it down before they change. And I think that's kind of eight and nine where just, it's just, the train is just coming off the rails. In Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, you hear stories about some people who they use this phrase, I had to hit rock bottom. And then when I had nothing, I realized what I had had. Um, I worked with a, a fellow who he helped teenagers who were troubled. And one of his jobs was he took them out into the wilderness and he'd talk about the beauty of life and breathing and how so many things we just take for granted. And it's almost like what Bryce is saying with chapters eight and nine, how this is just this wake up, wake up to, to who you are. And the end of seven to me is people that are awake. They see as they are seen and they know as they are known and they know who Jesus is. And I, this is just my Mike Day Midrash on this, take it for what it's worth. I love 716 where it says, they shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. In my mind's eye, I see the saints of God under the tree, the tree of life in Lehi's dream. They have all that they need. They have each other, they have God. In the midst of this chaos, there's peace. I wanna read a little bit that likens unto this from section 45, the Doctrine and Covenants. A lot of times, I think the saints, those that read scripture can get caught up in the, I call it the Michael Bay-isms of the second coming. If you don't know who Michael Bay is, he makes a lot of movies with explosions, things are on fire and bullets whizzing around. And so sometimes we can sensationalize the second coming and you know we tend to look at the explosions and the special effects and we miss what the point is. And so to me, the Doctrine and Covenants, especially section 45, really lay this out. And it's on a macro level, and I challenge you to do this sometime when you read the Doctrine and Covenants, if you were to take big picture Doctrine and Covenants, what's the big message? There's a bunch of them, but one of the threads that's woven through the text of the Doctrine and Covenants is the Lord is uh, very carefully whispering to the saints, get out. You need to go west. And so they go, they go west to Ohio, and the Lord says, you're only going to be here five years. I need you to keep going. And then later he says, you've heard of wars in foreign countries. You don't even know the wars that are coming at your doors. And so then they go west. And so the saints get to Utah. I, I like to say the saints went to Mexico in 1847 because there, you know, it wasn't part of America, but the saints get to Utah in 1847. And in 1861, the entire nation collapses upon itself. And we have the bloodiest war that the United States of America has ever had. And the saints are carefully protected in the mountains they were warned continually by God, and the destruction came. And that's a small way to look at this, the big picture of the second coming. So in section 45 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord says this, verse 64, I, the Lord, have said, gather out from the eastern lands and assemble yourselves together, ye elders of my church, go into the western countries and call upon the inhabitants to repent. And inasmuch as they do repent, build up churches unto me. And with one heart and one mind, gather up your riches that you may purchase an inheritance, which shall hereafter be appointed unto you. And it shall be called, and this is the verse I love, verse 66. And it shall be called the new Jerusalem, a land of peace, a city of refuge, a place of safety for the saints of the most high God. And the glory of the Lord shall be there. And the terror of the Lord shall also be there. Inasmuch that the wicked will not come into it, for it shall be called Zion. And it shall come to pass that among the wicked, that every man that will not take 
up his sword against his neighbor must needs flee unto Zion for safety. And there shall be gathered unto it out of every nation under heaven, and it shall be the only people that shall not be at war one with another. One way to read this, there's this really cool scripture in the Book of Mormon where the Lord says, it's by the wicked that the wicked are punished. I think one way to read the book of Revelation is God is allowing this to happen, but he's doing everything you're talking about, Bryce. He's saying, get out, come to Zion. And I love Alma chapter 50 in the middle of the war chapters. I mean, chapter 49, the Lamanites attack. They don't have much success, but they've begun their attack. So the threat of Lamanite attack is real. They've started attacking as of Alma 49. And then in the middle of chapter 50, how in the world could this be true? How in the world, in the middle of the threat of the Lamanites at war, could verse 23 of Alma 50 be true? That says, there never was a happier time among the people of Nephi since the days of Nephi than the days of Moroni. They felt peace because Moroni was there and Moroni was going to protect them. And yes, there was a threat. And yes, the Lamanites were after them. And yes, Amalickiah thirsted for their blood, but they were happy because Moroni was there. And by the same token, in the middle of our future, when wars are being poured out and everything's going off the rails, we will be with our God. He will be with us. And there never will be a happier time than when God is with his people and led by a prophet and he's wiped away their tears. This is not unprecedented to be happy when there is chaos in the world. So let's be clear, Revelation chapter 9, it does say in verse 15 and verse 18 that the third part of men were killed. But I think we do a disservice in assuming that's 33%. The only other time third part appears in the book of Revelation is in Revelation 12 where Satan cast the third part to the earth. So clearly, the third part is associated with worshipers of the devil who will not worship God, who will not worship Christ, who will not put the mark of their forehead. Are you okay? Those are the ones being destroyed. Are you okay with that not being 33.3%? I'm very okay with that. I've always struggled with that. Yeah, I've always struggled with a third, but I think a third part meaning a portion. Yeah. As if there's a first part, a second part, and then a third part, but there's no assumption necessarily that there are three equal parts. I I like that. And I like the fact that if we're consistent with the book of Revelation, so eight and nine, third part, third part, third part, and then chapter 12, we see Satan is associated with the third part. So I think the message here is, yes, there will be destruction. There will be bloodshed, but it's targeted primarily against those who will not put Christ on their forehead. And not only that, now we turn to 1 Nephi. So let's go to that chapter that Mike was mentioning. I remind you that Nephi was allowed to see many of the things that John saw in the book of Revelation, that Nephi saw the end, but he wasn't allowed to write the end, and that John's going to take over, and the Lord is very specific to say, John's going to write the remainder of this vision. So may I suggest that Revelation flows out of Nephi's visions in 1 Nephi. So Nephi is not allowed to write it. It is not his lot to tell us the end of the world. But Nephi is allowed to comment on it. And he says, look, it's not my job to tell you what happens 
or to to give the vision that John's going to give. But let me tell you some things I learned. So verse 13, he seems to be pointing out some things that surprised him. And we seem to think that in the end, good will defeat evil. Because isn't that how all the superhero movies end? I mean, Superman takes a hit. But in the end, Superman defeats evil. And so we kind of get the idea that in the end of this world, good will be the ones destroying evil. And that's not what Nephi saw. What surprised him is verse 13. Mike, you want to read it? Yeah. The blood of that great and abominable church, which is the whore of all the earth, shall turn upon their own heads. For they shall war among themselves, and the sword of their own hands shall fall upon their own heads, and they shall be drunken with their own blood." And so in this, the way I read this, I tie this in with section 45, where the Lord says, I am doing everything. I'm begging people, get out, get out of the chaos and come to the tree, take the fruit, get out of here. It's Lehi begging people, hey, we are going to get wrecked. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. We've got to repent. It's the story of Nineveh. It's the story of all these prophets. And in this case, in verse 13, it looks like it's the great bombable church is destroying itself. That's that's a good reading. But the saints have gotten out. We the saw that. We're going to see that in Third Nephi. You know, Zarahemla was burned. Well, why weren't the wretches burned? Well, they're in Bountiful. They've already gotten out of Zarahemla, and they're up in Bountiful. Bountiful wasn't burned. Bountiful's where the Lord's going to appear. So clearly, there's going to be a time period where the Lord says, I'm going to protect my righteous while the wicked destroy themselves. But the other thing that I want to point out is the other thing that Nephi saw. So Nephi saw that the wicked would turn on the wicked and destroy themselves. And then Nephi, look at 17 and 19 and 20 and 22. He says, look, it is not my job to tell you exactly the details about what will happen, but what I can say, and he says it over and over and over again. Verse 17, he will preserve the righteous by his power. End of verse 17, wherefore, the righteous need not fear. Yes, there will be death and destruction, but it will be targeted against those who will not change. The righteous need not fear. Verse 19, the righteous shall not perish. Verse 20, the Lord will surely prepare a way for his people. Verse 22, the righteous need not fear. So yes, there's going to be destruction. And yes, it's going to be scary, but the righteous will be gathered together and God will be with them and he will comfort them and feed them and everything's going to be okay. The righteous need not fear. One thing I want to throw out is how the book of Revelation has been interpreted over the years. So some people turn it into an allegory, and it certainly has a lot of allegorical elements to it. But if we're going to take Nephi seriously, his brothers come up to him and say, Nephi, uh, is this stuff like for real? Is this like just a spiritual message? Is this a metaphor or is this is this like a, the real deal? And so that's in verse one. And, and they say, you know, is this stuff that's going to be, which are spiritual, which shall come to pass according to the spirit and not the flesh. You can almost see them saying, okay, does the Lord really mean business? Is this an allegory? And I love what Nephi says in verse three. He says, uh, well, it's both. It's temporal and it's spiritual. And the house of Israel, sooner or later, God's going to have his people. And then at the end of the revelation in first Nephi 22, and I like Bryce, how you say, Nephi's seen this stuff. He's commenting on this. And so I like to talk about the Book of Mormon being a key that unlocks the Bible, that the Bible is a lock and the key can open it. But if you look at verse 27, 
And now behold, I, Nephi, say unto you that all these things must come according to the flesh. So this is real. The Savior's real, and he's going to redeem his people. I take it serious. If, if you believe the Book of Mormon, if you believe Nephi, this is real stuff. And I just, I just want to testify to you that, that Nephi is real. So let's get to 10, because I think 10 is such a critical message. So Revelations chapter 8 and 9 are the cleansing, the destruction. We've got to turn this earth from a celestial into a terrestrial earth. And so John sees in vision the destruction. But I remind you, it's a vision. Even in our day, it's a vision. Yes, in some sense, it's literal today, but the cleansing of the earth has not yet happened. We're still in the sixth seal. One thing I do want to throw out is this is where the book of Revelation has perpetual relevance, because if you lived in Europe in 1939 and 1943 and you're reading Revelation 8 and 9, what are you seeing? If you lived at the fall of the Roman Empire, what are you seeing? If you lived in 70 AD in Jerusalem, and I don't know if this was textualized then, but if it was, what are you seeing? In other words, this has perpetual relevance to people that have lived in these war-torn countries where they've seen massive destruction. They read these words and they have relevance to them. And so I like to call Revelation 10 the little book interlude. So we're going to take a pause on the vision. And I think to me, this is God saying, John, let me tell you about what you're to do. Yeah. And that's my point is, so destruction, destruction, destruction. And yet, what can you do about it, John? So chapter 10, John sees a little book and the angel says, go eat it up. And so he ran over there, give me the little book. And the angel says, take it and eat it. And it'll be bitter in thy belly and sweet in, thy, in as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it up and it was sweet and bitter. Now we've got to turn to Joseph Smith, section 77. Joseph says, what is the little book? Section 77, the question is verse 14. What's the little book in chapter 10? And the Lord says, we are to understand that it was a mission and an ordinance for him to gather the tribes of Israel. Behold, this is Elias, who, as it is written, must come and restore all things. So one reading of this is it's his calling. It's his calling to bring home Israel and it tastes sweet, but it's bitter. And any one of our listeners who's ever really sweat and you've toiled in the service of God, you've tasted the sweetness. But with that, because of the ocean of chaos that we live in, with that comes the bitterness. Now, do you see that beauty? So John sees destruction and then he's given a mission. You and I are reading about destruction and the Lord is holding out his hand saying, can you help me? Will you do something about it? It's an invitation. Can you make a difference? Please help me so that my people aren't destroyed, so that my children aren't destroyed. You've just got to see the beauty of 10 after 8 and 9. So it's like, okay, let me show you the cleansing, John. You need to understand the cleansing and the third part get destroyed and the third part get destroyed. But even though the righteous aren't being destroyed and the wicked are being destroyed, John is still given a mission. Please go save them. Go save as many as you can. And I think those of us who read the book of Revelation today need to say, you know what, Lord, I get it. I hear the message. I am going to save as many as I possibly can. Where's my little book that you want me to eat, Lord? I'll eat it. You want me to go to Mexico? You want me to go to Scandinavia? Wherever you want me to go. And I'll do it in my backyard. I'll do it in my high school. I'll do it in my college. I'll do it when I go to the grocery store. I am going to save as many of thy children as I possibly can. Please 
says the father, help me save them. It's sweet. There's nothing like missionary work. There's nothing like bringing someone to Christ, but it's also hard. It's also bitter. It's the most important work that we can do. And so we hear President Nelson inviting the youth to the greatest cause on earth, save Heavenly Father's children. Years ago, Jane Milan of the General Young Women's Presidency gave just a talk that has stayed with me ever since I heard it. And I'm just going to read it because her words are absolutely beautiful. But this is Revelation chapter 10. Here's her talk. The day school was out at the beginning of each summer, our family went to our ranch in Wyoming. It was there with my parents and brother and sisters and a few cousins mixed in that I learned about family loyalty, love and concern, birth and death, and that one must finish a job once it is started. And to quote my father, there's only two things important in life, the family and the church. One year, my father was waiting for us as we arrived. He said he had a big job for my brother Clay and me to do that summer. I was about 12 at the time and my brother was two years older. Pointing to the field by the side of the house, my father said, Do you see all of the lambs in that field? I'll share the money we get with the ones we raise when we sell them in the fall. Well, we were excited. Not only did we have a significant job to do, but we were going to be rich. There were a lot of lambs in that field, about 350 of them, and all we had to do was feed them. However, there was one thing that my father hadn't mentioned. None of the lambs had mothers. Just after shearing, there was a violent storm that chilled the newly shorn sheep. Dad lost a thousand ewes that year. The mothers of our lambs were among them. To feed one or two baby animals is one thing, but to feed 350 is something else. It was hard. There was plenty of grass, but lambs couldn't eat grass. They didn't have teeth. They needed milk. So we made some long V-shaped feeding troughs out of some boards. Then we got some great big tin wash tub, ground up some grain and added milk to make a thin mash. While my brother poured the mash into the troughs, I rounded up the lambs, herded them to the trough and said, eat. Well, they just stood there looking at me. Although they were hungry and there was food in front of them, they still wouldn't eat. No one had taught them how to drink milk out of a trough. So I tried pushing them towards the troughs. Do you know what happens when you try to push sheep? They run the other way. And when you lose one, you could lose all of them because others will follow. That's the way it is with sheep. We tried lining up the lambs among the troughs and pushing their noses down into the milk, hoping they'd get a taste and want some more. We tried wiggling our fingers in the milk to get them to suck on our fingers. Some of them would drink, but most of them ran away. Many of the lambs were slowly starving to death. The only way we could be sure they were fed but was by picking them up in our arms two at a time and feeding them like babies. And then there were the coyotes. At night, the coyotes would sit up on the hill and they'd howl. The next morning, we would see the results of their night's work and we would have two or three lambs more to bury. The coyotes would sneak up on the lambs, scatter the herd, and then pick out the ones they wanted and go after them. The first were those that were weak or separated from the flock. Often in the night when the coyotes came and the lambs were restless, Dad would take out his rifle and shoot in the air to scare them away. We felt secure when my dad was home because we knew our lambs were safe when he was there to watch over them. Clay and I soon forgot about being rich. All we wanted to do was save our lambs. And the hardest part was seeing them die. 
Every morning we would find five, seven, ten lambs that had died during the night. Some the coyotes got, others starved to death, surrounded by food they couldn't or wouldn't eat. Part of our job was to gather up the dead lambs and help dispose of them. I got used to that. It really wasn't so bad until I named one of the lambs. It was an awkward little thing with a black spot on its nose. It was always under my feet. It knew my voice. I loved my lamb. It was one I held in my arms and fed with a bottle like a baby. One morning my lamb didn't come when I called. I found it later that day under the willows by the creek. It was dead. With tears streaming down my face, I picked up my lamb and went to find my father. Looking up at him, I said, Dad, isn't there someone who can help us feed our lambs? That's Revelation 10. Destruction is coming. Isn't there someone who can help him feed his lambs? So let that be an invitation. We see this paralleled all over the place. It's the Lord saying, I have power, but we're in it together. And so other places, Lehi, first Nephi chapter one, it's probably the most often read chapter in the book of Mormon. Lehi gets a book. He knows destruction's coming. He reads the book and then he goes and does. It's in Ezekiel two and three, starting at about verse seven. Ezekiel has the same kind of vision where he's told to eat the book and he sees how far astray the children of Israel have gone. But I really like that story. I think that's a really good ending. It's this message that there's a lot of messed up stuff in the world. I once had a student come to me and say, how do I reconcile a powerful God in a world of all this chaos? And I I said to the student, it's you. You are how you reconcile it. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, look what you have. Look at your talents. The things that the Lord has given you, what are you going to do with it? What difference are you going to make? And so that's my invitation to you is take Revelation 10, especially those verses in the end, verse 9 and 10 and towards the end of chapter 10, and look at this as whatever your calling is, there is no such thing as a small calling or a, a calling that's too big. Everybody has a has a message to share and something to do. And so let us all do our part. And I think that's the invitation of Revelation 10. And so with that, we will see you next time when we open up Revelation 11. If you like this video, be sure to subscribe. And if you haven't already, go check out our YouTube channel called Talking Scripture. On that channel, Bryce and I have been working on some new video content. These new videos are in addition to the regular podcasts that Bryce and I do together and supplements to your Come Follow Me study. And we'll leave a link in the description. Thanks for joining us and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.